This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Travel is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, my name is Chris Dankberg. I uh, run partnerships for Viasat. And what I love about travel is maybe a little cliched, but I love meeting people that I have not seen in a while, people that I've never met, and I love coming home and seeing people that I know very well. How many times have you paid $30 for Wi-Fi on a flight only to have unreliable connectivity? It's maddening. It may help to know what's going on behind this seemingly no-win scenario. Well, you're about to get the story of why this is happening straight from the horse's mouth. And better yet, you'll learn what the future for network connectivity looks like in the travel industry. Coming up, we'll take the why out of in-flight Wi-Fi in a conversation with one of the leading providers in satellite network connectivity. This is Travel Is Your Business, covering the intersection of technology and business in the travel industry. So Chris, tell me, why is my Wi-Fi slow on my flight? I get asked that question a lot, and (laughs) it is both complicated and a little bit simple. I I think, so at Visat, we've been in the in-flight Wi-Fi business um, in commercial airliners. So JetBlue being our first customer, United was our second, Hmm. and uh, it's coming up on just about five years. Um, And prior to that, Viasat was doing Wi-Fi for governments as well as private aviation, and we're doing that over satellite. And in the early 2000s, uh, Boeing actually commissioned a project to do in-flight Wi-Fi. And it was actually right before September 11th. Uh, and when that happened, there was a pretty significant drawdown, obviously, in the airline industry. And that project was modified, I would say. But I also think it was a different time. If you think about 2001, 2002, People had laptops with an hour and 15 minutes of battery life. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of business travelers that were desperate to connect, you know, to get that email across, get the presentation back to your office. Um, but there wasn't an iPhone. There, there wasn't even really a, a BlackBerry. You know, at that point, it was, it was uh, you're pl- still playing T9, you know, texting and the snake game. You, get, you guys don't do that anymore? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but, uh, but, and then, so I'd say, you know, and, and Viasat was actually going to work. We had a contract to work on that project uh, with Boeing. And we did end up doing work on that project. But that did not ultimately become sort of our in-flight Wi-Fi product. Seven, six, seven years later was sort of the advent of what you now are sort of commonly associate with in-flight Wi-Fi. So there's a company called Rope 44 that was serving Southwest Airlines. GoGo went into service. I believe Virgin America was their first uh, customer. They had full fleet covers. I think American may have gone first. But both of those services came online pretty much at the exact moment that the iPhone was released. Now, I don't think people, so 2007, 2008 timeframe, I don't think people necessarily knew what the iPhone was going to do to computing. I, I certainly didn't. <laughs> I used the BlackBerry uh, uh, at that point in time. My, my mother-in-law has actually uh, worked in uh, the communications department, PR for AT&T. She gave me an iPhone as a wedding present. Uh, I didn't open it for three years. Uh, I, I didn't open it until we went, uh, my wife and I went to Europe, uh, and uh, I couldn't take my BlackBerry. It didn't have a SIM card that would work in Europe, so I took my iPhone with me, and uh, I used it the entire time. And when I came home, I turned in my BlackBerry. I had, you know, StubHub give me a new 
phone and I use my phone. I've never switched back. I have two of them sitting right here. Um, and that really changed, I think, you know, so it's a personal change for me, I, but I sort of track the changes the same way for the industry. So I didn't work at Viasat actually in that time frame. I, I was at a company called StubHub at that point. But if you fast forward another seven years, um, there actually was a market at that point for sort of ubiquitous coverage uh, in, on an airplane. People had gotten used to texting uh, checking the weather, checking you know Yelp or or whatever you're going to do hotel tonight, something that you needed, that was somewhat urgent, you know, as you were flying to your location, and the idea that you could actually connect seamlessly with with your device that you use on the ground, I think became I'm not going to say obvious, but it became um, it became palatable. So I think for Viasat, it was it was really good timing, uh, but it was also you know for instance JetBlue was was really patient. Uh, with with Viasat, they actually decided they hadn't put in an in-flight connectivity product. They'd actually decided not to go with sort of what was available on the market at that point. They decided to to wait for Viasat um, to launch a satellite, which was called Viasat One, which launched in 2011 and went into service about a year later. And JetBlue went into service a year after that, so it was t- late 2013. And uh, the reason, I guess, you asked me, which is why is Wi-Fi so slow? It's it's mostly just that the demand wasn't necessarily forecasted correctly, and so initially there wasn't enough supply to meet demand. The constraint is literally how much bandwidth is being served to the plane, and frankly, it's it's the amount of people that want to get online. And you know, most of the services were were getting five you know five six seven percent of of travelers, and they were all business travelers on expense accounts. Frankly, at the beginning. And by the way, that was the highest valued customer. And those are the people that really needed to connect. And, you know, you could wait four hours or whatever to send a text or to do whatever you would do on your phone. But really, it was more that the phone became a more intimate, sort of, frankly, necessary experience. I think that really shifted. The market wasn't a laptop anymore. By the way, battery life started to get better. People bring iPads, you bring your phone. And like people are just used to using those devices, essentially, without interruption. So I think uh, what really happened was that the market for our particular technology, you know, satellite communications and frankly, really, really high capacity satellites over a different frequency band enabled a different style of, of connection. And mm-hmm. so so the answer to the question is that the market really wasn't ready, I think, for, for what I would say is ubiquitous coverage. Uh, the technology was there, although Viasat 1 and sort of the next generation of satellites that have come after that have really unlocked the potential to serve that demand. Hmm. Great answer. That's really fascinating history on it. (laughs) And just, you know, how many dependencies are in this space. Um, So, you know, to John's question of why is it so slow, the other side and frustration is why is it so expensive? Yeah, and that that goes back to some of the same stuff. I mean, I think so from Viasat's perspective, uh, I would say density of coverage. You know, uh, so essentially the amount of capacity that you make available, uh, and capacity for us is um, it's the same thing that you would get. You know, when you talk about, you know, I don't know if you whatever your office internet connection is here. I'm not sure, but you probably have something like one or two hundred megabits to to the building, and then you distribute that around, right? You've got mm-hmm. people here. Like two hundred up and yeah, two hundred megabits. Yeah. yeah, so you've got people in here on on computer doing a variety of different things, and mm-hmm. you buy that service from an ISP. You know, and and so 
Repping there, pilot fiber. There you go. Okay. Good plug. <laughs> we um, so so Viasat. You know, there's a, we're a lot of things. The technology company. We're designing satellites. We're designing uh, all kinds of different communication systems. But also, we are a ISP. We're an internet mm. service provider. We yeah. do a residential broadband of about seven hundred thousand homes uh, here in the United States. We're now expanding into other parts of the world. Viasat two, which launched uh, last summer. Is, is what's enabling us now to go serve uh, different markets, including the Caribbean, over into Europe, uh, water coverage. So, uh, but I guess the, the thing that we really brought to the market, which, which came with the first Viasat 1 satellite, uh, which is the one that JetBlue has been using, um, was very different economics of that capacity. So we, we say it's about 140 gigabits per second up in space. That gets essentially dynamically served to all of the variety of different customers we have. So at this point, we've got uh, not only do we have uh, JetBlue, we've got United Airlines, Virgin America, American Airlines. Um, we've also got uh, 700,000 residential customers. We've got a bunch of business customers. We're starting to experiment with a couple other services, what we call community Wi-Fi, serving mm. Wi-Fi in sort of markets that don't have access to the Internet otherwise, you know, low-income areas. And what we're doing is sort of allocating that capacity on an as-needed basis, frankly, to meet whatever the service uh, is that we, you know, our customers have decided to offer. So what really enables that is is sort of unprecedented bandwidth economics, and that's what we talk about. So not to get too wonky into that, but really, I would say is historically speaking, satellite was just very expensive. I mean, uh, communication systems were not designed for internet access that were being served, mm. you, know, uh, you know, certainly not the way people think about internet access right now. They're used for sort of essential travel services, you know, uh, communications, medical emergencies, location emergencies, things like that. That was sort of global coverage was designed to provide communications in, in the event of an emergency or disaster, or, or if your business depended on that. So, you know, air travel certainly considered in that. But what wasn't considered was that the whole plane would want to use the internet. And uh, we actually, we talk about, you know, the, the ability to serve 700,000 residential customers on Viasat 1 at the same time that you're serving millions of customers on JetBlue and United and all of our airline partners at the same time is a real asset, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I think initially there was a lot of questions as Viasat an aviation company, and we certainly are. We've been serving... We, we like to think airplanes about as hard as it gets. You know, they're moving 700 miles an hour, and you got to locate them, and you got to serve them instantaneously, track them as they go from beam to beam. But um, we, we've been doing that for basically the company's been around for 30 years. Uh, we've been doing that more or less since the company started. But in terms of being a real aviation, you know, aviation company that is known within the industry, that's been a fairly recent thing. And so we've gone around and sort of explained that to the, to the airlines and other people that are interested in what we're doing. And the ability to serve the residential broadband market as well as these other markets plus air is a real big advantage. That's what allows us to get to economics, for instance, that allows JetBlue to offer the service for free. And, and we believe that as an amenity is, is incredibly uh, important, you know, especially as only growing. I, I listened to the one, the route happy. Uh, yeah, Bob Albert. Yeah, Bob Albert was on and he talked about that as well. And yeah. I sort of use the same thing, like seats. <laughs> Seats is the biggest one, you know, and I'm not a particularly big person, but I, I definitely value my, my seat a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I probably choose that, but, but I really think Wi-Fi matters a lot too. So. Yeah. Are you finding, I mean, it's, it sounds a lot like it's exactly what you're finding, but you know, the trend as we've talked about before is that, you know, people are using their devices even more and actually some of them, some of the um, carriers are 
kind of discontinuing some of the um, back of seat entertainment yeah. and things like a, of that. Like how how is it that you're able to manage people on multiple devices across all of the different frequencies that are going on in an actual airplane? Because you know you can't do Bluetooth. You can't. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's a bunch of different. Yeah, it's a metal tube. <laughs> so it's not hurtling through the conductive, sky. You know, I, by the way, you're gonna you're gonna catch me pretty quick here as uh, not an engineer. I'll play one on the radio. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm 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 familiar with. You know, it is. It's really challenging. I mean, the answer mm-hmm. to that question is, and I think you know. So we've obviously gotten to kind of intimately know a lot of the usually technology operations within the airline is the group that we, you know, tend to spend a bunch of time with. And, and mm-hmm. that is, you know, I may be there for one or two of those meetings, but we obviously got a team of people that spends a lot of time on the RF. So it's a radio frequency in, inside the plane and, and exactly what you're asking, which is, you know, how do you, um, so, so you've got the seat backs, which, you know, increasingly people want to pair with their own headphones. Yeah. Um, you've got, obviously you've got, in some cases you've got jacks that are on the seats next to you and, People get confused about what they can use and what they can't use. So obviously, I'm I'm holding on to my AirPods. I'm clearly uh, I I travel with them all the time. They're like the best thing ever. I actually, have a second pair as well. But <laughs> trying to figure out how to allow people to continue to connect as seamlessly as they do on the ground in an airplane, it's not the the challenge. Doesn't just it's not just Wi-Fi. I guess to answer your question, it is trying to figure out kind of where is your attention really going. I think the airlines are. Um, and we've been pretty fortunate, I think, to be included in, in a lot of those conversations in terms of well, what, yeah, what can you serve on my iPad? What if I had, uh, what if I had original content that I wanted to serve on the plane? And what if I wanted to partner with, you know, in JetBlue's case, an Amazon or, or you know, other airlines, Virgin America was doing something with Netflix. That it, what if you wanted to serve original content, maybe exclusive content, music, whatever it is? There's a lot of demand to make more even than what's just available on your own personal device. And and people, they talk about, you know, I actually can remember pretty vividly, we did a, a big demo at American Airlines at one point. Uh, we'd already, you know, I think, I think we'd already gotten the contract, but we were sort of showing their executive team what you could do uh, on a plane. It was pretty neat. It was exactly what you just asked. Mm. And so, you know, it was like the second screen, the third screen, you know, the kids. And so we basically encouraged them to bring grandkids, anybody you could possibly think of that would get on the plane and, and stress it. And, and I think the answer to that question is it's evolving. Our, what right. we believe our job is, is to uh, help organize a little bit of, um, you know, frankly, it's sort of like provide data back and say, what are people really using? What, what, what's valuable to your passengers? And sort of tying that back together with customer satisfaction data, um, you know, when you get off the plane, did you have a good experience? What did you do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I do think second screen, third screen stuff is is a big deal. So we still do see a lot of people will, you know, I know this on a JetBlue flight for sure. They've got the direct TV. They're watching sports. You might be tweeting. You might be texting your friends. You might also be doing a little bit of work. So mm-hmm. having two or three devices up at or devices, you know, at that point, I would consider the seat back a device. I think, yeah. I think yeah, there was yeah, a while definitely. ago where you'd say those were different. At this point, you know, nobody really, you know. The only thing I say is like sometimes those little screens are hard to hard to push the channel button on <laughs> as compared to, you know, my iPad generally works. So I, I even think that, you know, like for instance, on Southwest, you're watching TV and you are controlling it on your own device. That's actually to me, that's a pretty good experience because I know how to work my own iPad and I don't always know how to work, you know, the, the screen. So it, it really it, I think it varies. But I think our job is to provide data back and right. try to provide input into sort of what people really value. So that's a great opportunity for us. 
I want to dig into that more, yeah. but in the meantime, I totally want to dig into the snack that you brought right. us. <laughs> yes, this was the part I was looking forward to. <laughs> All right, so do I open them now? Yeah, yeah, the go okay. for it. So, and what I should have? tell you what they are. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna let you guys. I got three. They're enormous. Okay. It's called. Um, but I'm gonna let you guys sample. I'm gonna be try to be. What are they? They are cookies from a place called the Levon Bakery. Um, which is on the Upper West Side. Ooh. I I used to live here in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, I went to college in Rhode Island, uh, and then I lived in Manhattan after school. And uh, you guys had asked me at the beginning kind of what is what do I like about travel. And, and honestly, for me, New York is kind of like a waypoint in my life. So I, I travel. I'm lucky to travel a lot for work. <laughs> There, there's a, uh, there's, they're big cookies. Wow. Um, they're gigantic. <laughs> actually, and I think there's even a story that I'm probably going to get wrong. Yeah. But um, though, I think it was two friends, women that were, I want to say training for triathlons or something. And they were burning oh, yeah. so many Sorry. calories that they needed to replenish that they came up with their own recipe for, and so I don't think you want to know how many calories are in the cookies. <laughs> That's why they're good for sharing. But, um, and, uh, but anyways, when I was, you know, we, I, some of my best friends, uh, I, I moved to the city, uh, after college and, um, some of my best friends lived in Manhattan and, uh, with us and they actually were the ones that first took us to Levon and, uh, we ended up kind of you know we moved away in 2008 we moved to san francisco and but i still you know i come back to new york at least i don't know at least six seven eight times a year at least and pretty much if i'm in a certainly if i'm in a car and i'm in sort of in control of my own travel destiny i will i will usually stop and now i've got kids and so now they know about levon and so if we come through or you know going passing by in new york we there's also another breakfast place. I don't know if you guys know this place called Good Enough to Eat, which is right around the corner too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we used to live on the Upper East Side, and our friends uh, we would go across the we'd go across the park, and we'd go to breakfast with them. And then usually, not after having a gigantic breakfast, we'd also get a gigantic cookie <laughs> on a Sunday or something. And so now, you know, now my kid. Well, actually, I was here last summer with my. I brought my family out. We did a couple things, and then we come through the city for a day. We'll probably do that again this summer, and we will come back. And so I figured like that's for me is that's one of the things I like to do when I come to New York. So hopefully you guys yeah. like them. I, if you don't mind, I'm going to have a bite now. Yeah, no, Go please. For it. As a disclaimer, this podcast is not sponsored by Levon Bakery, <laughs> but I will say this is best cookie I've ever had. <laughs> awesome. Coming up, you'll hear more from Chris on the next frontier for Wi-Fi capabilities and travel along with how to develop really unique and dynamic partnerships. Hey everybody, this is Vikram Iyer with the American Enough Podcast. And just wanted to thank all of you for listening and tuning in week after week. Uh, We are just on the precipice of clearing our one-year anniversary, and this has been an incredible journey and examination of who America really is against the the headwinds of our modern times. If you are interested in the perspectives of mayors and how the identity of their cities is changing America's fabric or how our foreign policy is changing the way that CIA agents do their business or even how those brave enough to come forward and and stake a claim in the Time's Up or the Me Too movement, how their identities have have been changed by speaking out so publicly, Uh, or even if you're just interested in how Netflix documentarians are viewing the world and using satire and entertainment to cope with our current times, 
there is something for everybody across this channel. And uh, we hope that you continue to subscribe and like wherever you pod. American Enough can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. Um, and if you have any feedback or have any ideas for more great show, never hesitate to, to email Vikram at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com or tweet at Vikram Iyer on Twitter. And uh, please keep spreading the word. This is not over anytime soon. Keep up with the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Our episodes are available on iTunes and Google Play and online at travelisyourbusiness.com. Plus, there are a lot more great shows on Mouth Media Network. Take a trip to mouthmedianetwork.com to enjoy them all. And remember, we love fan mail. Drop us a note to say hi, suggest a guest, or if you'd like to become a sponsor on the show, email us at travelbizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. So Chris, you guys have kind of changed the game when it comes to in-flight Wi-Fi. Um, but when I look at other pain points, a big one is trains, right? <laughs> so my family is in Washington, so I end up taking that Penn Station to Union Station train, and it is such a frustration, kind of like how Wi-Fi on, on aircraft was in the old days. So why is that, and um, do you have plans <laughs> in that space? Yeah, it's another metal tube question. Right. Uh, it's a different type of metal tube. Right. It's traveling slightly slower, but with more tunnels and a difficult angle to the sky. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I would love to answer that question. And, and actually, we think we've actually, so Viaset has uh, been doing, we, I get, I get, Ask that question a lot, frankly. You know, what, what comes next? You know, travel is, and I love travel. Obviously, as an industry, I was really excited to talk about it. Um, and we, we, see, we see the same pain points. You know, uh, trains are, are a particularly hard technology problem for a lot of reasons. Not, not, um, not that they can't be solved. Actually, Viasat has been in the business of uh, solving hard problems pretty much since the company was started. We did, um, we've done work with uh, the, I, I, believe it's uh, i'm gonna get the scnf i forget the acronym but the train that's in france uh we've done work there uh kind of in the mid 2000s um and, and in a few other places as well we tested it in other markets i believe down in north carolina um and uh there's obviously a whole, whole bunch of other forms of transportation you got boats cars buses you name it uh drones, whatever, flying cars. Um, they're all kind of on, on the radar, I think, for, for us and for anybody that, that um, is in the business of trying to enhance that experience. <clears throat> I've been, specifically with trains and maybe boats, I'll tell you a little about as well. We've been, uh, one of the things that Viset specifically is dependent on is coverage. So, you know, having our Viset uh, technology around the world will sort of enhance our ability to do a truly global services but we've also been really successful doing what we would describe as regional services. Mm -hmm. So here in the United States, obviously, we got started with, with, with JetBlue doing air travel. We've also done some things with ferries. Um, we've experimented with, with, with a few different, uh, uh, different setups, I guess you would say, uh, on, on different forms of transportation. Anything that moves is interesting to us, and the faster it moves and sort of the more difficult the angle of – you actually need – so I, I think I guess – very brief satellite 101 is you need to be able to see the satellite, right? So, so in in canyons and an urban canyon like New York, I don't know if you guys see this. There'll be um, you know the 
emergency vehicles will have satellite dishes. There'll be reporters around and they'll have yeah. a big, and they basically have to get themselves into a position where they can see. It's usually to the south. Um, they, they've got to be able to find um, the, the satellite. And so different parts of the United States and then different parts of the world have different look angles. Trains present a particularly difficult problem because they go through tunnels. Uh, that's not an unsolvable problem. It just changes the nature of how you distribute the service. But we actually really expect to be, we've we certainly talked to, you mentioned Amtrak, you know, we, we've, we've pretty much talked to all the major train operators. Um, they do offer Wi-Fi, usually with cellular. And the reason that they are, the service quality is poor is usually contention. Um, you're traveling in saturated areas. You might be right next to the freeway. Huh. There's a lot of people looking for, frankly, connectivity from the same sources. So it's a little bit of the same problem we talked about with why does it not work so well on the plane is I don't think everybody forecasted the demand. Um, you are starting to see, by the way, um, there's actually a really good article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, um, even within the auto manufacturers, uh, sort of trying to figure out how does 5G solve some of these problems, maybe some problems it doesn't solve, what does Wi-Fi solve? And a lot of that is, and you've probably heard some of this, I mean, you hear it on, it's becoming a fairly large news topic, um, is, you know, spectrum allocation. So, mm. you know, the radio, FCC governs the radio spectrum here in the United States, and there's other governing bodies around the world. And it, it's, a, it's obviously a very valuable resource. It's what makes your cell phone work. It's what makes lots of things work. And we've become so attached to them that when you're in an environment where it doesn't work, it feels bad um, and actually one thing <laughs> Terrifying, I was, I was yeah, no kidding I was on the train this morning I took the metro north here into into Manhattan I, I love the metro north um, not not you know and I'm not sh I, I will say I don't know if they actually have Wi-Fi I don't think they do but you but you have 3g 4g but you're going right next to 95 right uh, and connection mm -hmm. you know connections poor it disconnects a while you you can talk but it'll chop in and out and actually for me I listen to podcasts or, or Spotify or, and Actually, without a connection, um, you don't realize it, but there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening in the background on your device. And if you don't have a consistent connection, your Spotify won't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's actually something that we see as a real, as a, you know, frankly, we'd like to be able to provide a solution to that. I guess to answer your question about specifically trains um, and other forms of transportation, we, we definitely intend on, you know, basically as our coverage grows, being able to offer a broader and broader range of services. So maritime industry is really interesting. Uh, cars are interesting. Trains are, are really interesting. I wouldn't say that we have any particular advantage on a train as compared to a boat or a car, you know, but we certainly can serve the market. And we've, we've done things, you know, there's sort of a mobile connectivity uh, is a is a long problem that people have been trying to solve for. And it really does come down to sort of the availability of, of bandwidth again. And there's just not enough. So it sounds like you're, you know, working across several different sectors, many industries, you know, and your role as, as a head of partnerships in that sense, um, you've had to really build some dynamic relationships. And for a lot of people going into the travel industry, that's uh, that's something that's incredibly important. It's it's uh, difficult for many, and um, so I'm curious, you know, what are some of your experiences uh, going into Viasat, but um, uh, while you're there as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a really good question, and I think you know, I if somebody had asked me that um, when I was you know kind of just getting into the e-commerce world, I, I don't know what I would have said uh, exactly. Too, uh, I was certainly looking for. Frankly, I, I had a really great, um, met some great people. Actually, StubHub was where kind of I would say my formative years on the internet were spent. And I, 
always kind of gotten lucky, frankly. I've been in been in a good spot. Uh, StubHub has kind of just started to get real traction, um, and I, they had a great team of people. Um, there was a woman there. Uh, her name is Danielle Magid. She she was pretty outstanding, and that was essentially what her job was was to take experiences and. Uh, Frankly, she, I think she'd worked, I think she was coming directly from the Knicks or, and she'd previously maybe been at the NBA, but she just, just a rich experience of New Yorker, tough, uh, really, really smart <laughs> and a great teacher, frankly, was just really generous with her time. Um, but she, she showed me a little bit and she had a great team as well that I got to know a lot of different people. Um, and exactly that thing, which is how do you basically take a you know sort of a product that is looking for a fit or frankly you're trying to do something that somebody hasn't been able to do before and you need legitimacy you know you kind of need a market to test it in and StubHub was doing that over and over again so you know at the beginning we were we were the official secondary ticketing provider of you know x i, I can remember there was a couple of big ones that we got early on you know in the 2006 five time frame that that really set the company up and then uh you know i, I want to say I'm trying to think of what you know what the one was that that I really separated us, but it was the the biggest deal we did. It was not we. I mean Danielle. There was a team of people, but was MLB.com mm. uh, at two thousand seven and eight, I believe, and that was essentially become the official secondary ticketing provider of Major League Baseball. And obviously, they're here in New York. Um, and we were at that point that again, that's that's the iPhone. They, that was all about taking something that was previously been, you know. Ticket that was printed out, you yeah. hand it to somebody. Our business model at that point was putting tickets in FedEx envelopes and shipping them. Actually, that was you know one of my first jobs was here in New York, and I was actually facilitating people picking up their tickets at a location. Initially, we were right by Grand Central, so that people could pick up their tickets and get on the train and go to Yankee Stadium. That was the market. And if we did a hundred people came to pick up our tickets, we were dying. You know, it was, <laughs> it was hard work, really, really hard work. And it was a blast, but it was really hard. And then I can remember, uh, you know, th this deal uh, with Major League Baseball. It was all about Major League Baseball, frankly, wanting to lead the way. They had a technology group that was specifically designed to figure out, how, you know, what to do with the Internet. So one thing they did was streaming. Obviously, they were putting baseball games on the Internet before anybody else was doing that live. They also wanted to do ticketing. And they wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be integrated with your device. And they looked at that with us as an opportunity to sort of, uh, frankly, legitimize that market. And it was a really good opportunity for me, frankly. I got involved with that. Another friend uh, that I had been working with got, you know, onto that project, and I got involved with that a little bit. And increasingly, my job, I saw it as kind of taking something that you were doing here and taking it to a different industry or a different, you know, a different piece of technology or whatever, different, in this case, a different device, different application. Internally, you know what, there was actually a fair amount of anxiety right when it happened that oh man you know especially if you're in the business of handing tickets from one person to another you're in a physical location maybe this isn't gonna be good for our jobs or and i kind of had the opposite of points like man this is so cool we get to take all the stuff that we learned here and do this in another thing and i, I sort of got to you know ride the wave of that a little bit and i, I wasn't you know afraid to to i guess learn uh, you know uh, i suppose on the way we start we made plenty of mistakes trust me so i would say uh and you know kind of the the habit of my career inside of StubHub. And then actually eBay bought the company pretty much right around the same time. And that was an amazing experience too. eBay is an incredible company, you know, uh, great management. Uh, they, we learned a lot. Uh, I personally did. I think everybody that, uh, that I worked with did. And then eventually that actually got me back to the Bay Area. I'm from California originally. I got closer to home. 
Um, but there too, I was starting to do some of the same stuff. You know, I came out from the field and I was in corporate headquarters and I was sort of a, you know, somebody that talked to everybody, mm. but, um, and I wasn't, I didn't start the company. I was, I would sort of describe myself as maybe second or third generation of people that had come in, but still really got to learn, uh, you know, with my hands and really do the job. And then you come into headquarters and you start doing the same thing. You're kind of explaining to people how this works, you know, what we used to do in the field. And this is, you know, how should the website work? You start thinking about product. And actually, even, you know, then, I, you know, I did that for another five years, frankly, before I came to Biaset. But I would say pretty much every year, there was a new thing, a new piece of technology, a new wrinkle, and there was always a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of hesitation. Should we really do this? Oh, what if it breaks something we did? And I just kind of jumped on that stuff, and I loved it. And increasingly, it actually involved working with outside partners. So since sometimes that was a partner within eBay, so it was a PayPal you know, integration. Uh, so we did additional stuff with Major League Baseball. We started to do things with other sports leagues. Um, we started to do things that was more data-driven. So now you're actually sort of doing data sharing with teams and trying to figure out pricing strategies. So I got involved with that. And what happened was I, you know, I didn't really feel like I was doing anything different, but I was meeting a lot of different people, and, and especially the inside of eBay. You know, there was a, there was a guy, you know, he was um, – I'm not sure, honestly, if he would even – I don't know how much you'd remember. I, I think he, 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 he did a lot for, for my career. It was a short period of time, but there was a guy um, named Andy Palmer. He's actually here in New York now. And uh, he was a pretty kind of in a similar age range as me and, and had grown up in a different part of the company. But we kind of, he was sharing experiences with me and it was a really hard project that we were working on. And uh, he, he had some really good advice basically about, you know, always just starting something as like with new eyes and, you know, not being, not being afraid to ask, you know, dumb questions. There is no such thing as a dumb question. And that's true. I mean, it's so cliched, but it's, it's really true. And so in terms of partnerships, I think people underestimate how much of that quality is always there, you know? So for instance, when I got to, when I got to Viasat and so I, I kind of, I would say I, I got to the point of my career at eBay where I had done some things, I had managed some projects and I had, felt like I'd really learned a lot, but I also felt like I kind of wanted to do something new. And I wasn't afraid, frankly, to do it outside of that world. Um, Viasat for me is a little bit special as a place to go. Um, but uh, my dad actually started the company uh, with two co-founders in 1986. Wow. And so it was a little bit of going home, uh, but it was, a, it, was, it was sort of the same idea, which is, hey, can I take some of these things that I've learned in the, in the Bay Area and Viasat, literally JetBlue, kind of being the first, um, I would say, certainly, you know, really good opportunity for us to start to explain to our industry as well as the rest of the technology industry what was different about what we were doing. And uh, the same things were true, which was, hey, we've never done this before. There is no roadmap for how to integrate partners. And you're going to need to sit down and you're going to sit down with a kind of a variety of stakeholders. You have to figure out what makes sense. And it was it was really fun. Um, it was hard <laughs> at times, but it, it was certainly worth it, and it was it was great. And and so that kind of got me going and doing something similar, and, and actually starting to grow that um, capability inside of our company. So we we were able to do that a few different times with you know a variety of partners uh, in the commercial airspace. And now we're actually looking to do that in other parts of the market. You know it, whether it be you know things that move or in somebody's home. So, I, so for me, it's like it's new eyes. You know, it's not being afraid to sit down with somebody and say, okay, so you guys are doing this, you know. And I, I mean, even so for Amazon uh, with JetBlue, I remember they didn't have a video product, basically. And I can remember the first time I kind of came back and pitched it inside of ISAT. They're like, 
Amazon video, really? Like that's, you know, that's a thing? And everybody basically used that? Like, I was like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be a big deal. And, uh, <laughs> and obviously, I think at the time they maybe had one or two shows, you yeah. know, and obviously yeah. now they've got, they've won Oscars and all kinds of stuff. And really? so, and they got hundreds of hours of original programming. So, but that was, you know, that was early and that was before, you know, necessarily that was obvious that that was gonna go that way. But, and it was early in the process. I mean, best knows for sure there was a lot of work that went into oh, trying yeah. to make that <laughs> real. But, uh, <laughs> but it was, but, you know, so for me, looking for those types of opportunities where we can, you know, do something new in, a, in, a, in an experimental way, but also in a way that's going to stick if it works uh, is, a, is a really, really fun opportunity. So I, that's what I would sort of tell people is don't don't be afraid if nobody's done it before that doesn't mean that it can't happen it just means you kind of got to stick with it that's awesome that's terrific well coming up we'll hear more from chris on off the beaten path are you interested in conversations about the crossroads of business and innovation what if those conversations were about the largest industry in the u.s Hi, I'm Tom Kutzman. If you answered yes to both of those questions, then it's about time you check out Real Estate Is Your Business on the Mouth Media Network. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. And now it's time for Off the Beaten Path, where we get to know Chris a little bit more outside of the business side. So, Chris, your life is all around connectivity, right? Everyday connectivity. Do you ever disconnect when you travel? <laughs> that is a great question. I did turn my phone into airplane mode uh, before we sat down. Uh, <laughs> uh, I try. Actually, it's funny to say that. Yeah, lately, more. Um, I've got little kids, um, and, you know, you can't help but... One is my my daughter. I have two kids. Uh, one is six, and the other is three. Gabby is a little one. Natalie's the big one. And Gabby will say stuff like, "No phones, no phones." Oh. And now the flip side of that is also if they happen to get in control of my phone or iPad as it's unlocked, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But they they know, you know, when you're giving somebody your full attention, and and I try really hard uh, to, especially you know, I come home from a trip certainly or from uh from work or whatever and I, and I basically put my phone down and I try not to look at it again uh at least you know until my kids go to bed for the very minimum and lately actually you know I might not even really you know plug back in but when I'm traveling uh no not really I don't really disconnect I actually because I, I travel a fair amount for my job and I try to do as much as I possibly can in that time and that generally does mean being in contact with people I you know, I was I was I came down here today from uh, I was in Rhode Island yesterday in Boston, and you know it's kind of like from from the day, the minute I get up till when I go to bed, and I'm trying to you know see people that I haven't seen in a little while, and and be in touch. Obviously, stay in touch with your office and and people you work with, and so I I don't disconnect that much while I travel, and sort of helps me frankly get more out of my travel and the time that I am away from my family. But when I'm at home and it's a weekend or you know sporting events with my kids or something, I, I try to be pretty well disconnected. So Chris, I'm curious. Um, sounds like you have traveled around a little bit. Um, what's a trip that has um, really just changed your life? Ooh, cool question. Um, 
So I think I think two trips changed my life. <laughs> One was uh, so I I worked in my first couple jobs at a well while I was in college um, was in really the thing that got me motivated in in school and really to do stuff after school was sports um, and it was. It was baseball really was the sport that kind of drew me in. And it was, I don't know if you guys are, are you baseball fans at all or anybody in here kind of. Not sort of really. Fans. Sorry. Yeah, okay. If you guys have seen, so I, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen is the, the movie Moneyball. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that movie was a book, uh, it was a Michael Lewis book. It came out, I want to say like 2002, 2003, which is pretty much exactly when I got out of school. And I had been, this is a little bit of a nerdy moment, but it'll tie back to a trip. I was I was doing a bunch of work on spreadsheets in my dorm room, and my roommates used to give me a hard time. And I was publishing them on the internet, and I think they were joking with me that nobody was reading or listening. And that might have been true. Um, my parents, <laughs> maybe my mom. But um, but I was doing stuff. Oh, uh, you're the guy with the spreadsheets. <laughs> I, was the guy with I, the was, I saw those. People knew me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not really. But, but you know, kind of almost randomly or, or I don't know, you know, that became really important in baseball and sports, you know, was the ability to kind of translate what was going on uh, on a, on a, in a game into, into, you know, into math. And mm-hmm. that was something I was really interested in. And uh, I, I was sort of lucky enough to be able to do that as an intern when I was in school. I ended up getting a really cool job right out of school, uh, working for a baseball team in, in San Diego, working for the Padres. And, um, but, you know, it didn't go exactly the way that I wanted to. Um, and there was a lot of reasons for that. I learned a lot. But actually, there was a trip that I took. So I, at the time, I, I flew back to New York. I went to a baseball game with my dad. Um, it was actually, it was the year that the Mets and the Yankees, it was 2000, the year the Mets and the Yankees met in the World Series. I came out here, watched a couple of baseball games, and... It, it really um, changed the way that I thought about how I was going to kind of get to choose my own path. And if you could find something that was interesting to you, that it was going to lead you to all this different stuff. And that trip was kind of random and whimsical. It was like, I don't even remember. I think I decided I was going to do it. You know, with my dad had a crazy travel schedule when I was a kid too and took me out there and, and – you know, just like the world reopened for me in terms of like mm. what I could go on and do. And that, and I was about 20, 21 years old. And then, you know, actually about 10 years later, well, there's two trips really, but both of them involved my wife. Um, at the time she wasn't the first time I went and similarly actually kind of flew to Houston to meet her. Um, and, uh, without really knowing what was going to happen, we weren't dating, we weren't anything. I was actually going out to the winter meetings, which was for baseball. That was kind of like, where you got your jobs and how you networked. And I was basically ready to go back and figure out how to kind of like get, get back into, you know, Moneyball was a big thing. I had done some stuff that people had read. I could go get a job and could be the next Theo Epstein or whatever. And if you read that, he's a prominent figure. He runs the Cubs at the moment. Familiar, he actually yes, used yeah. to run baseball operations for the Padres. He's a pretty awesome dude. The guy that I worked for was hired by Theo. And it was a really neat time. Um, but I actually met... My, my now wife picked me up at the airport. We weren't dating. We started. Essentially, she picked me up. It became uh, a relationship. and That we, was the threshold. Yeah. yeah we that, actually decided the we were going to move to New York together on that weekend, wow. literally. We'd known each other, so it wasn't like we didn't know each other before. But um, <laughs> it became a relationship. And uh, actually, that was a really life-changing trip. And that, that to me, I think, um, really kind of signifies you got to put yourself out there. 
you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I, I'd say travel is like a really interesting experience where you can, you know, anything can happen. Right. And especially if you put yourself in those kind of situations. So those trips, I think really kind of shaped my life. Another five years later, we actually went to Europe, um, uh, together and it was a really fun trip. I screwed up and we didn't get to Cinque Terre, which we were supposed to. And so I still owe her that trip. But it was actually pretty much when I decided that I was probably going to come back and work for Viasat. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that much later the Viasat one launched and it was a very kind of emotional feeling and wanting to go back and try to, to help. And, and so for me, like I think, and I think there's like studies about this too. Like when you're on an airplane, you feel like you emotions are felt more intensely. Yeah. I think that's just mm. generally true of travel and, you know, and, and so for me, it's really helpful to think, mm. you know, you kind of, I can kind of chart big decisions and moments in my life based on that. So that's amazing. Yeah. I totally feel that. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so thank you again for joining us today. Is there a, a final thought that you'd want to share something? Um, you could be a reflection on what we talked about today or just your experiences, you know, yeah. broadly. Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a little bit riffing on the same theme, but I, I, I think I've, I've, I certainly feel this and, and it's been incredibly, um, gratifying for me like throughout my whole life and kind of the you asked me like do you ever disconnect or and I do and I'm being like especially you know with my family but the ability to like stay in connection with people in different phases of your life and kind of weave those things back together um, to me has you know I, I honestly don't know another way I don't think I could function necessarily without it but figuring out I think especially if you're trying to do something as a startup or, or really trying to make something happen that that's an important quality uh, and the thing that I, at least for me, it has been, and I would say, um, the other thing is, you know, within Viasat, I, I got kind of welcomed into a group, a very entrepreneurial group that is actually the group that put together the the commercial air business and had traced back years and years of the original Boeing project. And they really kind of welcomed me in. And, and I had a very similar experience at StubHub too. It was sort of like, we were like kind of the lost puppies and, you know, kind of <laughs> somebody adopted us and we kept getting to do cool stuff. That's almost exactly how I feel about what has happened for me at Viasat too. And it's a, it's a group of guys. Don Butchman is, is the guy that is, generally is out there and talking and, and he's done an incredibly good job. He's got a great team of people that have been with him and other people even previous to that. And, uh, them giving me the chance to kind of do what I was doing and frankly, learn and experiment uh, I, it meant the world to me. And I, I'd had a very similar experience actually at, at StubHub. You know, somebody took a chance on me and, and let me do that. And even, you know, baseball was the same way. The, the, the guy that hired me because of my spreadsheets <laughs> was a really nice guy and it didn't have to work out. It Honestly, it didn't work out because of me, not, not because of anything that anybody else did. But all of those things were learning experiences. And I think especially if you're going to try to start something or do something hard, you know, it's never going to be easy. Like mm -hmm. it, it just, it just really isn't. And one of the things that's going to help you out is all of these people that you've met along the way in ways that you're never going to see are going to come back and help you and probably going to ask you for help too. And I'd say, you know, give people time and patience, frankly, and, and hopefully something really cool happens. So yeah. that's, that's kind of been my thing. It hopefully keeps working. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And how can somebody uh, get in touch with you? What's the best way of either you or um, work at Viasat? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I think um, I'm actually, I well, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be outed as somebody. I do use social media when I'm on my phone um, a little <laughs> bit. You know, Twitter is actually my favorite thing. Uh, to, I've learned more from people I've met on Twitter, you know, pretty, pretty awesome uh, friendships and stuff, both people I knew beforehand and then after. 
Uh, so yeah, tw- you know, you can find me. I think um, Chris underscore Dankberg at Twitter, and I'll generally read stuff. People send me anything. Um, pretty active on there. I that's the app that I basically have to turn off when I go to bed. And uh, but it's been you know it's a it's an, crazy company uh you know known some people there and and kind of an amazing ride for them they actually kind of took off right at the same time that StubHub did they're around the corner from mm. our office and it's been a, that's probably one of the most amazing companies i've ever seen for all of the reasons good bad you know not to mention all the, the stuff that's happened in the last couple of years but uh, i'm still using it that's the best way to find me so awesome well, yeah thanks great. for joining us today chris thank you guys for having me this was really fun and you're you've got a so cool fun. space i'm kind of jealous i want the couch <laughs> I'm actually going to take a picture of it and show it to my wife. We we just moved into our place and we are trying to decide on what type of couch and I think this is exactly what we should get. It's built for a family. It's okay. just, it's, <laughs> it's a very good couch. A, you can use that as a selling point. Yeah, like it's totally. <laughs> oh, thanks again. And um and for my co-host Bess. Um this Bess Chapman happy trails. And I'm your co-host John Matson. Bon voyage. This has been Travel Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at travelisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, travelisyourbusiness.com. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.